Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. As a healthcare provider, you may encounter patients with short bowel syndrome that fall into the early, adaptive, or even the maintenance stage of intestinal adaptation. In concert with the structural, functional, and pathophysiologic changes occurring in these patients, you need to be aware of how this impacts medication absorption. Simply restarting a patient's home meds after short bowel surgery could have serious consequences. Those long-acting formulations, sorbitol-containing liquids, and many other factors could spell trouble. Thankfully, we have an expert with us today, Dr. Jiayin Townley, to outline medication pearls that providers of all type must consider when managing patients with short bowel syndrome. Short bowel syndrome is a disease state that we may not see very often, um, but it is one where I think as pharmacists and other providers that we can make quite an impact on um, optimizing their our patients' pharmaceutical care. Um, and just kind of wanted to go over this topic since this is um, a patient population I do see occasionally on the post-surgical floor amongst our Crohn's patients. So um, learning objectives today, uh, we're going to go over the pathophysiology of short bowel syndrome, um, identify medications used to manage this disease state, and recognize ways that we can optimize um, current medication regimens for our patients. So start off by talking about what is short bowel syndrome. Um, we've heard about it um, as if you have less than 200 centimeters of functional intestine, but there is further classification that we need to be mindful of. Um, so there are three groups that are divided from an anatomical perspective. Um, so we have our group three patients who have an ileocondylonic anastomosis. Maybe they have part of their jejunum resected or part of their colon. But what's key here is remembering that the ileocecal valve is intact in these patients. In group two, we have patients with a jejunocolonic anastomosis, meaning their ileum has been resected. And then finally, with group one, we have patients who have an injejunostomy, which means no colon and no ileum. Another way we classify our patients is based on the amount of absorption that they can get from their small from their um, following intestinal resection, um, divided between intestinal insufficiency and intestinal fa failure. So in intestinal insufficiency, these patients are able to compensate by increasing the amount that they take in orally, and that's with or without supportive pharmacotherapies. Whereas with intestinal failure, these are patients that are going to be dependent on IV fluid infusions or um, IV nutrition via uh, parental nutrition or PN. Um, so just to kind of illustrate um, from an anatomy perspective what all that means, um, so I'm also a very visual person. Uh, as you can see in type 3, um, our patients do have a portion of their intestine resected and possibly part of their colon, but the, um, you still have quite a bit of intestine remaining, whereas in type 2 with the jejunal colonic anastomosis, um, a good portion 
of the small intestine is resected because we've taken out the ileum. And finally, with an injejunostomy, these are patients who are going to have um, an ostomy bag, usually at somewhere along their jejunum. Um, fortunately, our body is able to kind of compensate for uh, after intestinal resection, and um, we kind of lay it out into three stages. In the early stage, which is from time of resection to about a month after, um, is when we're going to have to provide a lot of supportive care for our patients because they're going to have high intestinal losses, a lot of metabolic derangements as a result of all the high output that happens following resection, and they're also going to have increased gastrin secretion and gastric acid secretion too, which alters the pH, and that is something we have to consider with medications because of absorption and pH changes that happen. Um, following that, and for up to two years, is your body kind of adapting to that resection. Um, so we're going to see some structural adaptation and functional adaptation. Um, and what happens with the gut is even though lengthwise you've kind of truncated it, it also uh, grows widthwise through bile or bowel delay bowel dilation, sorry, um, increased villi height and crypt depth, which increases the surface area that is available for um, absorption. Uh, functionally, um, adaptation is promoted by um, enteral feedings, whether that's orally or through a feeding tube, um, secretion of uh, digestive enzymes like pancreatic enzymes or um, biliary secretions, and also by gut hormones that are uh, produced by what's left of the ileum and colon if the patient has them. Um, going forward beyond two years, um, a lot of that adaptation kind of plateaus um, and kind of where the patient's at is where they're at and that we consider that the maintenance stage. So some of these pathophysiology pathophysiological changes are driven by gut hormones like I mentioned. Um, those are generally mediated by uh, glucagon-like peptide, or GLP-2, epidermal growth factor, EGF, cholecystokinin, gastrin, insulin growth hormone, or IGF-1, and neurotensin. Um, and a lot of these are secreted in the ileum or in the colon, um, and that is what brings up to a, another generalization is your ileum is going to be able to adapt a lot better than the jejunum. So a patient that undergoes a jejunal resection or colonic resection but keeps their ileum, they're going to be able to have better functional and structural adaptation compared to somebody who just has their jejunum left, as such as in our patients who just have the injejunostomy. Um, there is a feedback me mechanism in the ileum that helps slow down GI transit and delay gastric emptying. Um, that's going to help in to increase um, absorption. And like I mentioned earlier, the ileal cecal valve, it's an important site for gut hormone secretion. That's where a lot of GLP-1, GLP-2 is, uh, and peptide YY is secreted. And there's also thought that this kind of acts as a gatekeeper between the small intestine and the colon. Um, bacterial overgrowth is an issue in some of our SBS patients, um, and that is when your colonic bacteria kind of migrate up and grow into your small bowel, um, and that can cause a whole host of problems. Um, so what's key here also is, does the patient still have their colon? That's something else to consider <coughs> anatomically in these patients. Um, so some of the malabsorption issues that can result from SBS, so we're going to see a lot of fluid loss, electrolyte abnormalities, mainly hypokalemia, hypomagnesemia, 
Some of our patients, um, especially if they still have a colon, may have issues with hypocalcemia, and there's going to be many acid-base abnormalities. Um, low albumin tends to be another problem. And then because fat absorption is um, especially affected by loss of the ileum, you can also expect some vitamin mineral deficiencies, specifically in our fat-soluble vitamins A, D, and E. Vitamin K is um, produced by our colonic gut bacteria, and when the colon is missing, that's about when you'll see more vitamin K deficiency. Uh, vitamin B12 is mostly absorbed in the ileum, so a lack of an ileum can, be, um, can drive deficiency in those patients. And then with zinc, copper, and selenium, um, those are going to be affected if patients are having a lot of high output, especially with zinc. And since zinc and copper kind of compete for uh, absorption, you run into issues with copper deficiencies if you try to give the patient more zinc to kind of replete that. Um, again, fat absorption is going to be a major issue, and all this, for a lot of our patients, result in um, weight loss. So um, we're going to get to our first uh, question on Poll Everywhere, if everybody would like to respond via the app or on the website. So which patients would you expect to suffer, or, or sorry, are more likely to suffer from intestinal failure? Is it A, a colon cancer patient um, with radiation enteritis who now has a right hemicolectomy with anastomosis? Is it a Crohn's patient with enterocutaneous fistulas who are now um, status post-jejunal colonic anastomosis, or um, a patient who now has an endjejunostomy after a horrific car accident. Okay, and um, so I think most of us picked C, which is a patient with an endjejunostomy, and that would be the correct answer because this is a patient who does not have their colon, does not have their ileum, and all they have left is their jejunum, which puts them at a very high risk for you know, dehydration, poor fat absorption, and a whole host of other issues that we just discussed. Um, a is not correct because uh, a right hemicolectomy just means that the patient had part of their colon removed, so their entire small intestine is still intact, and we're generally able to compensate fairly well, even with um, major uh, colon resections. Um, and then B is, you know, I, you could make the argument that this patient may suffer from intestinal failure at some point in their clinical course, um, but there's, they, because they don't have the ileum, but they still have their colon, and that's what kind of distinguishes B from C, with C being the best answer in this case. So now let's go over some of the challenges um, that our short bowel patients deal with. Um, so the main things that they will be going through is the need to maintain hydration, maximize absorption with what they have left, and try to minimize their output, which also helps them to maintain their hydration. As you can see, it all kind of goes together. So first, let's go over uh, medications that may help maintain hydration in our patients. And other than increasing your oral intake, um, options are somewhat limited. Um, one way that we can minimize fluid and electrolyte loss in our patients is through oral rehydration solutions. Um, the 
main um, electrolyte in these solutions is sodium, usually in about the 90 to 120 mil equivalent per liter range. And the reason for that is by giving them sodium, that's going to promote water absorption because um, water follows sodium. Um, you might see some potassium and bicarb in some of these solutions as well. And then glucose for maintaining isotonicity because a lot of these solutions tend to be very hypertonic and can actually drive diarrhea in these patients. Um, we also encourage patients to avoid simple sugars in their diet. We want complex carbs kind of for the same reason. Um, and then if um, those don't work, we have IV fluid replacement or IV nutrition as another possibility, which some of our patients do end up on. Um, I believe our in-house product is Ceralite, if any of you have had the pleasure of dispensing that. Um, the feedback we get from patients is it's not very palatable, and that's why with oral rehydration solutions, you generally have pretty poor compliance, unfortunately. Okay, so next let's go over some ways we can maximize um, absorption in our patients. Um, so some of these will seem pretty mundane but familiar. Um, so we encourage um, crushing medication tablets and opening the capsule if possible. Um, obviously, you want to check and make sure that the, that is feasible for the product. Um, but that is one way that we can maximize um, absorption by bringing the medication down to a more absorbable state. Um, avoiding long-acting formulations, um, such as extended release or controlled release or long-acting medications, reason being that these patients are going to have um, decreased GI transit time, and the worry would be that these medications are going to be able to release in the amount of time that they exit the GI tract. Um, another thing that um, is key is avoiding sorbitol-containing liquid formulations. Um, kind of relating to the first point, um, we, we do like liquid formulations because the meds are in a more dissolvable state, but however, a lot of formulations are made with sorbitol, um, partly for palatability. And a lot of the sorbitol that is in these meds is enough to cause diarrhea just by themselves. So something to kind of watch out for. Um, unfortunately, um, most products aren't going to list how much sorbitol. You have to call the manufacturer um, in order to find that out. So we usually just look at the label if it has sorbitol as an inactive ingredient. We just see if there's another product available um, or if it is in a tablet or capsule form that can be opened or crushed. Um, and then thinking outside the box, too, um, doesn't have to necessarily be absorbed through the GI tract. You know, we have buccal and sublingual formulations, transdermal forms. And then um, I do kind of want to caution on rectal formulations um, because of the altered anatomy in some of our patients. Um, you do not need um, colon continuity for rectal administration, but you do need to check if the patient has a rectum. So if our patient has had a uh, proctocolectomy, the rectum has been removed, and you're not going to be able to use um, rectal formulations in that patient population. And then medications that will improve absorption, we'll go over next, along with some that we may promote intestinal adaptation. 
So uh, meds that may be used to help with absorption, uh, fiber or psyllium is one that some of our patients will use. Um, what's key here is distinguishing between soluble and insoluble fiber. Um, so insoluble fiber is going to actually uh, bulk up the stool and can worsen diarrhea, whereas soluble fiber, which is what psyllium is, um, will actually help draw water and help reabsorption. Um, and then uh, cholestyramine is one that you might see in a very select patient population. Um, and this is one where um, a patient has less than 100 centimeters of their distal ileum resected. Um, and the, these types of patients, um, any unabsorbed bile acids go on into the colon, in the colon where the bacteria turn it into lithocholic acid, which exacerbates diarrhea. So cholestyramine can help bind up some of that, those unabsorbed bile acids um, and help in that specific situation. Unfortunately, if you've had more than 100 centimeters resected, you actually don't have enough ileum to absorb bile acids. And what happens is your bile acid pool gets depleted, and um, that worsens fat malabsorption, and it's really of no use, basically. Um, some of the doses of the cholestyramine can be up to 24 grams per day. Um, but you generally have to space it out with meals, obviously. Um, and then pancreatic enzymes, um, again, have somewhat limited utility. Um, pancreatic insufficiency isn't um, something we generally see in short bowel syndrome patients. Um, however, in that early stage, if you recall, where we have high um, gastric acid, hypersecretion, um, that can, the, the acid can um, inactivate pancreatic enzymes. And in that early stage, it might be beneficial for some of our patients to be put on pancreatic enzymes, at least for that time frame. Um, the other thing to consider is if the patient has an altered GI anatomy that results in pancreatic, pancreatic enzymes not being released in the uh, small intestine like it normally would be. We're going to go to our second question, which is more like a case. Um, and we have a um, Crohn's patient who's had multiple bowel resections and now has an angiogenostomy. She's been admitted for dehydration. And here you can see their um, current medication profile. Um, so we have liquid Tylenol, liquid lopiramide. Um, some IV antiemetics, uh, fluids, sub-Q heparin, and then their home medications, which is the omiprazole, 20 milligrams, two capsules twice a day, effects or extended release, 150, one capsule daily. Um, so using pull everywhere, what recommendations would you make to optimize this regimen? Um, would you A, change the Tylenol liquid to tablets and have them crushed? Um, would you change the lopiramide? Uh, suspension to capsules. You can open the capsules, mix it with applesauce for administration. Um, recommend switching the long-acting effector to the um, immediate release formulation to be dosed twice daily, or all of the above. Okay, and everyone is correct in that all of these are recommendations that we can make um, to the team to optimize her medication regimen. 
Um, one thing I want to note with, you know, in regards to sorbitol, um, so Tylenol suspension has about six grams of sorbitol per 1,000 milligram dose of Tylenol. And generally speaking, five to 10 grams is enough to cause diarrhea in a normal person that wouldn't normally suffer from high GI output. So even though it seems pretty minor, um, changing these medications from suspensions to tablets or capsules can have a huge effect in um, not just our SBS patients, but in our regular patients as well. Um, and then the effects are uh, extended release. The concern would be that it doesn't release all the way by the time um, she gets, it gets to her ostomy, because again, she has an endojunostomy. Um, so that could be a modification we can consider in, um, in her. Okay, so now I wanna discuss a few medications, or two medications that can help promote intestinal adaptation. So these are gonna be medications that are generally used um, after patients have hit that maintenance stage where the body's kind of done adapting, um, but we're not quite where we want to, our patient to be in terms of absorbing and maintaining hydration. So um, these are some um, tropic agents that can help promote intestinal adaptation. Um, the first one that came onto the market is somatropin or absorptive. And this is a human pituitary growth hormone um, with systemic effects that work in the GI to activate IGF-1 to promote cell growth. Um, the dose is 0.1 mil milligrams per kilo daily for four weeks. It's limited to four weeks because that was the study period that got it approved. Um, it may need to be dose reduced if um, the adverse effects of the peripheral edema or arthralgia get really bad. And a lot of patients um, did report a lot of musculoskeletal side effects, uh, mainly carpal tunnel syndrome in this patient population. Um, so the randomized controlled trial that got it approved um, was about a 40-patient study that looked at um, growth hormone, or GH, along with glutamine supplementation and diet, uh, or optimized oral diet. Um, so what happened was these patients um, are on TPN already. Their, um, their PN regimen was optimized and stabilized for two weeks, and then these patients um, underwent treatment with either growth hormone, growth hormone placebo, or glutamine and glutamine placebo, um, or both, for four weeks. And then there was the two-week follow-up. The main thing they looked at was whether there was a change in the PN volume um, at the end of the treatment period, and then they looked at whether there was any change at the end of follow-up. And what they found was from the um, baseline to the end of treatment, which was week six, is that there was a significant decrease in uh, PN volume needed in both of the growth hormones. <coughs> there was a reduction in the calories required in the PN in both the growth hormone groups, and um, there was a decrease in how often the patients required PN um, throughout the week as well. Uh, it was noted that the placebo or control group lost weight, whereas both the growth hormone groups did gain weight. 
Um, it was also noted that uh, there was an increase in oral fluid intake in all three groups, likely to compensate for the decrease in um, PN volume, but there was no significant change in stool output. So it's kind of questionable whether, you know, did our patients actually absorb any of the, um, the uh, oral intake that they took in? Um, and that kind of goes in line with the um, results at the end of follow-up, where once you stopped giving them growth hormone, you found that, um, that there wasn't a significant decrease in one of the groups um, compared to placebo. Um, there was still a reduction in PN calories and PN frequency and frequency of PN administration. However, at the end of the study, um, it was found that overall, all the patients did lose weight. Probably not the best thing that we want in our patient population. Um, the other um, main issue with the somatropin was that 94% of our patients who received it got peripheral edema, um, and almost half of them had a lot of musculoskeletal complaints. Um, in four of the patients, this was held for five days and then resumed at a half dose, which is kind of where we get the dose adjustment recommendations. So ultimately, um, what we kind of saw was after we stopped giving this, um, the positive effects went away and it had really poor um, side effects that came with it. Uh, so next I'm gonna talk about tidoglutide or GADEX. Um, and this is a newer agent that came out on the market about I think two, three years ago. Um, this is a GLP-2 analog. And what's nice about this is it is GI-specific. Um, so by activating GLP-2 receptors, increasing IGF-1, um, releasing nitric oxide and um, KGF, we're going to have increased intestinal blood flow uh, and portal blood flow. Um, it also inhibits gastric acid secretion, so we're kind of, you know, promoting adaptation and we're also decreasing the amount of GI secretions, um, and decreasing output that way. It is dosed at 0 0.05 milligrams per kilo daily, and there is a renal adjustment for um, our patients with renal impairment. Um, the main things that um, we found was that because this is a um, tropic agent, that it probably should not be using it in patients with malignancy of any sort. Um, it's recommended that all patients undergo colonoscopy um, prior to starting this medication. And they also found in the studies that um, some of the patients had a lot of more tropic effects than desired, especially around their stoma sites. So quite a few patients did have to have their stoma revised because um, it had grown to the point where it was blocking output. Um, there was also notable uh, cholecystitis and pancreatitis with um, this medication. So looking at the trials that um, that got uh, to Duglutide approved. Um, so there, there's three that I'll go over. Um, and what differed from this patient, this, these studies and the prior one is they targeted urine output to determine whether 
the PN can be weaned or not. So it was weaned based on an algorithm um, targeting one to two liters of urine output a day. Um, these patients were optimized over seven, 16 weeks from baseline, and then they were put into three groups, either placebo or tadeglutide 0.1 or the 0 0.05. Um, there was a further um, extension of the study group to kind of look at the long-term safety effects of um, tadeglutide, um, and we'll kind of go through all that. So um, the first study looked at um, um, they used a graded response score to determine the um, decrease in terms of intensity and duration of PN reduction. Um, the second study by Jepson, they looked at a responder rate, which they defined as the percentage of patients who achieved a 20, greater than 20% PN volume reduction from baseline um, to week 20. And then if they maintain that through week 24 to see if this was a sustained effect. And just to kind of put that into context, a 20% volume reduction in PN is about one less day of PN a week for the patient. So we're not just looking at, you know, volume in general, but, you know, these are actual clinical, a more clinical outcome for this patient group. Um, and then finally, that 28-week extension study where the patient was on it for pretty much a year just to kind of look at the safety of it. So going over the results real quick, um, surprisingly, um, it does not appear that there is a dose-dependent effect of the tadeglutide. Um, the 0.05 milligrams actually showed significant improvement from the control, whereas the 0.1 milligram per kilo did not. Um, there was some thought that maybe the um, PN reduction algorithm for that first study just wasn't as robust to allow for, um, to see the effects of PN reduction. Um, but it is notable that tadeglutide in general um, had, um, the, the lower dose had almost 50% patients um, have a 20% PN reduction, whereas the higher dose, you know, had about a quarter. What's notable is there were three patients in both the tadeglutide groups who came off PN support completely. Um, and again, these are patients that have been on PN for many, many years. Um, and I believe one of the ones in the 0.05 milligram per kilo group had actually been on PN for 25 years before managing to come off of this. Um, so Jepson did another study in 2012 that looked just at the 0.05 and reaffirmed um, kind of the results that they had from their prior study. And then O'Keefe, when they did that 52-week extension, they found that um, with both the 0.05 and the 0.1 groups, you saw further reductions in, um, in uh, PN um, support um, with a total of four patients coming off from both of the tadeglutide groups. Okay, and finally, I want to go over strategies to kind of minimize the output in our SBS patients, um, mainly by helping to slow down that high output that they'll, they um, suffer from. So some of these medications will look very familiar, but um, the reason why we use them may not be what you would expect. Um, so first off, for slowing GI transit time, um, we have lopiramide, which I'm sure 
most people are familiar with. Um, Remodium is the over-the-counter brand for it. Um, but the thing I want to key in here is um, SBS patients generally require higher doses for the lopiramide to work. Um, so because lopiramide is metabolized through an enterohepatic circulation that is disrupted in our type 1 and type 2 SBS patients, sometimes they'll need doses up to 32 milligrams per day. So you may have a patient who is taking, you know, 8 milligrams four times a day, and your first thought is, well, that is way too much. But in our patients here, um, they might need that in order to see the beneficial effects. Um, and again, kind of what we mentioned earlier, we recommend opening the capsule, mixing it with applesauce um, to kind of help with the absorption of the lopiramide. Um, the uh, lamotil or diphenoxylate or atropine is kind of another second line agent that we'll use. Um, and the diphenoxylate does cross the blood-brain barrier, unlike the lopiramide, so you may see some um, CNS effects with this medication, but generally it's um, the, what limits this medication is the anticholinergic side effects that come from the atropine. And they formulate them together to kind of decrease the abuse potential of this medication as well. Um, and because Lamolda is a Schedule 5, it's not as readily available as the lopiramide. So that's the main reason, I believe, why we see lopiramide for most of our patients. And then if that doesn't work, you know, we'll, we'll add on the Lamolda after that. And then opioids in general, because um, we all know opioids cause constipation. Um, so tincture of opium, codeine, morphine are all ones that we'll see commonly. Um, it does have a high abuse potential, and these are all Schedule II medications. Um, one thing I will note, though, is although patients do tend to develop uh, tolerance to the analgesic effects of opioids, um, they don't with the constipating side effect of opioids. So that's always good. Um, <laughs> don't have to worry about that effect going away. And then the key thing with all these is we want to administer before meals um, and at bedtime, so essentially on an empty stomach. Um, but the reason we want to do it, and particularly before meals, is uh, we want to time it so that these are working before the gastrocolic reflux kicks in. And that's basically, you know, you eat, and then your colon's going, okay, we're going to start moving things through. And that happens about 15 minutes from... Um, when you start eating. So before meals is key for these to be effective. Um, and then the next group we'll go over is ways we can decrease the gastrointestinal secretions. Um, so proton pump inhibitors and H2 antagonists are another group I'm sure everyone is familiar with. Um, and these are going to be key, especially in that early stage where you're going to see a lot of hypergastric secretion in our SBS patients. Um, the thing I want to note is you're going to want to treat as if you're treating gastric acid hypersecretion. So these are going to be um, doses up to um, 80 milligrams twice a day of pentoprazole or you know, 40 milligrams twice a day of omeprazole. And we don't want you to be scared of that. That's 
generally the dose you would use for a gastric acid hypersecretion disease state. Um, the, generally speaking, proton pump inhibitors have been found to be more efficacious than H2 antagonists, but H2 antagonists are also available in an IV form that can be added to PN. So you kind of have to modify um, what you want to do for these patients based on um, if they're able to tolerate oral or not. Other thing to kind of keep in mind is the long-term consequences of acid suppressive therapy. Um, so we all know PPIs, you know, we worry about osteoporosis, um, possibly C. diff, um, B12 deficiency, and in a patient with already um, ileal resection, they're going to have issues with B12 deficiency already. Um, and then there is some thought that the uh, proton pump inhibitors may promote small bowel um, bacterial overgrowth as well. Um, octreotide is a somastatin analog and it works by inhibiting gastrin and other GI hormones. It's available only as an injectable, either sub-Q or IV. The other issue with octreotide is it tends to be very costly, and the side effect we most worry about in our patients is either hyper or hypoglycemia. Um, and I have seen patients who get hypoglycemic on octreotide. It's quite surprising, but um, in a patient who is it tends to also get dehydrated. You know, hypoglycemia can cause a lot of issues. Um, there is also some data that um, questions if octreotide might limit intestinal adaptation. Um, so that is a medication we would most like to avoid during that um, adaptive stage for sure. Um, and then finally, clonidine, which I was quite surprised by, but um, it's a alpha-2 um, agonist, and in our situation, it binds the receptors in the enteric neurons, and this results in decreased gastric and colonic motility um, and decreased intestinal fluid secretion. Um, unfortunately, the data to support it is limited. I believe it was, um, it was like two case studies, and then they did like an eight-patient study group. <laughs> so very limited, but it does have the pro of being available in a transdermal formulation. Um, but again, we want to caution, um, with, since it is a blood pressure medication, um, patients who tend towards hypotension or orthostatic hypertension or hypotension, um, especially in the context of, you know, dehydration being a big issue in our SBS patients. So finally, last question. Um, so we, here we have a 54-year-old um, with metastatic colon cancer, radiation enteritis, and after multiple small bowel resections for uh, intestinal strictures, they now have an ileal anal anastomosis, and he's being admitted for diarrhea and dehydration. He is only on lopiramide, just as needed when he gets diarrhea, and pantoprazole, 40 milligrams, one daily. So using the um, whole everywhere, what would you not recommend as a potential change to his medication regimen? Um, is it A, you could increase the lopiramide um, every three to five days, um, up to four capsules four times a day, increase the pantoprazole from 40 twice a day to 80 twice a day, consider adding lamotil after the lopiramide has been optimized, or would you not start octreotide 150 micrograms three times a day? 
remember, this is what you don't want to recommend. <laughs> okay, I think most of us uh, would not recommend starting the octreotide, um, and this would be the best answer in this case, because um, octreotide isn't something we would necessarily do as first line. Um, you'll recall that um, it might inhibit intestinal adaptation. It tends to be very costly. And looking at his regimen, he's only doing the lopiramide maybe, what, once a day? You know, so if he's having issues with diarrhea, that would be the first thing I would do is increase the lopiramide. Again, we can use doses. We generally don't go all the way up to 32 milligrams per day, but at the very least, you know, 24 milligrams before considering maybe adding um, Lamotil, which is C. Um, and then his proton pump inhibitor can definitely be increased to kind of see if um, um, decreasing the gastric secretions can help slow, um, decrease the, that, sorry, um, not contribute to the diarrhea that he's having. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.